Axer Video here with Boston Speaks Up. I'm here with Justin Bingham from Janeiro Digital. Justin, thanks for having me. Thanks for, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me in your office. <laughs> <laughs> sort of like, thanks for having, um, thanks for letting me park for a few hours, get a little work done. Uh, beautiful yeah. space you have here. It's actually opening night. We're recording this on opening night for the Celtics. Yeah, and their 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 front office is two floors below us. Actually, <laughs> I I got on the elevator with someone that must work for the Celtics because they got off on the fourth floor and I saw all the Celtics. You saw the parquet stuff. entrance, and, and I was like, "Oh, trophies. sweet! Like, I'm, should I should I pop in see if they need any help marketing opening night? <laughs> I'm already getting my like ESPN push notifications. Hey, Zach, game one tonight. Get ready to follow along because. As as we know, right? The um, I have I have given uh, apps like ESPN and Bleacher Report like plenty of information that they know basketball is my sport, yeah. and so I've been getting a little more push notifications about the Celtics recently, ramping up for the game. Yeah, um, it's gonna be a good year. So I'm, I'm stoked. I, I I I have the game on record, and what I do is I. Like I do anything in my life, I, I, will, I will efficiently watch the game, minimizing the amount of time it forces my wife to. Uh, <laughs> it's one of the many compromises in life is uh, maybe you can. You, I can, can definitely relate. relate to that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Who's your sports team? Um, so I would say probably Red Sox and Patriots are up at the top, yeah. but um, I watch a lot of Bruins and Celtics games as well, especially because we're literally right next door yeah. and um, we have um uh we have Sox tickets and celtics and bruins tickets we probably use the celtics and bruins the most because it's so convenient it's yeah. it's a hundred feet you know yeah. uh, out the front door i could throw a stone at the garden right now from yeah. The office. yeah and um it's such a it's such a good experience and um whether i take the train or if i drive in i don't have to repark anywhere <laughs> you yeah. just go to the game yeah. like um so uh um and there, I don't, for anybody who hasn't been to the garden recently, the work that they're doing there and what they've done to the yeah. place is unbelievable. They open something new every every week or two right now. So yeah. it's, the area is just coming yeah. up. So yeah, and it's not a shameless promotion for my neighborhood. It's pretty cool. Like even not, um, yeah, like you don't have to go into the garden, like with a ticket to enjoy all the amenities. Yeah. Like even just being in the train station to catch a commuter rail back, like you, you know, you live in Middleton and you'll sometimes mm -hmm. hit the Beverly Depot spot, which is yeah. the stop, stop I'll, I'll go back and forth from when I train into the city. But when you're sitting in North Station now, they have like that beer guard. They have like a bar. They have a tasty burger. They now. have a tasty, they have a tasty burger. burger. So it's like you can literally just you can meet up with someone. Mate, you know, we should actually do that sometime. Yeah. Oh, you know what? We gotta catch up. We're both busy. Let's catch up. We'll take the five thirty train. We'll grab a tasty burger and a beer. Yeah. We'll hop on the train and we may need to pick this podcast up and move it over to tasty burger. Yeah, right seriously, now. <laughs> seriously, I'm starting to get hungry. Yeah. It's four o'clock. Um so let's talk just briefly like top line as we're going to, I want to unpack your, um, your background, sure. but first just at the top line where it, it what is, what is Janeiro digital and, and sort of, you know, what are you working on? And then I, I kind of want to keep it sort of top line elevator pitch, which, yeah, which absolutely. I know is easier said <laughs> than done. Yeah. And then let's kind of build, I want to go back in time and kind of build up toward where we are today. Love it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Janeiro digital, we've been in business, uh, over a decade, my brother and I uh, started it. We've been a team for a long time, which as we go back in time, you'll, you'll learn more about. Um, I'm the chief technology officer, my brother Jonathan's the CEO. Uh, and really, we're um, 
primary focus, professional services, organization, really uh, kind of like the tip of the spear of digital transformation. So uh, most people hear about digital transformation on the commercials with like the magic connected cow and yeah. everything. Yeah. In reality, uh, most big organizations, really big and even medium size, are going through these digital transformations. I would say most of them haven't it's almost like you're never finished, but a lot of them I think have started or are in the middle phase and it really comes down to the fact that over the years of growing and being a big business, you acquire all this technology and you make all these things and a lot of them are acquiring companies and trying to merge stuff together. You end up with just a lot of things in a lot of places and it makes uh, even the normal course of business that's technology enabled, which is all of it, really hard to do. Um, let alone then trying to innovate. So customers, the market out there is demanding from just about any company that they interface with uh, some kind of streamlined experience that's either uh, a, a real digital interface experience. Like if you're a bank, you're, you expect your bank to have an app. Mm -hmm. uh, or you just expect that if you order something, it shows up tomorrow. Yeah. Because that's just what people have come to assume. And there's an enormous amount of uh, technology that's, that drives that. And for big established companies, they have to transform to achieve that. And for new ones, they have to be able to create something that's pretty sophisticated pretty fast. Mm -hmm. um, so what we do at Genero Digital is, um, is accomplish that for them across all kinds of verticals, um, whether it be energy, you know, like uh, creating a monitoring and diagnostic system for one of the biggest energy providers in, in the States, uh, monitoring all their power plants and, you know, taking data from thousands of sensors and making sure that literally the lights stay on uh -huh. um, to, uh, you know, working with one of the largest uh, social health care organizations in the world on um, keeping people's data both private but also um, usable. And so I think our kind of forte has been that we don't necessarily have a, a specific vertical that we only focus in. Our vertical is effectively, um, you know, big problem space that are mission critical and being able to create technology on that that you can build on for a long time. Yeah. And um, we've done quite well in that, I think. That's fun because it's no no shortage of tackling challenges at the bleeding edge of innovation. So it's it's I can imagine why you uh, love coming to work every day. I don't get bored. Yeah, that's for sure. And, so, that, and our team is amazing. We have such a good team, and these problems like they're multifaceted. They're not just it's not just technology. It's not just architecture. It's experience. Um, that's probably the thing I've been most proud of as a team that we put together to yeah. be able to knock some of this stuff out. Where yeah. We come into some things at the beginning and we're like, that's going to be hard. It's going to be extra, and, extra meaty. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we've just, we've, we've established, I think, over the years, a really good methodology for, um, for tackling stuff. It's like yeah. we tackle everything the same way, regardless of what it is. Yeah. And, you know, it's tend to get good results. So we'll, we'll go back in time soon. Let's double click on the methodology because rad. <laughs> Let's talk about the rad methodology, rad double D. Yeah. Uh, what does that, what does that mean? And like, what's, how does that manifest here at Janeiro? So um, where it really came from was uh, when the, the traditional kind of services model, someone comes in and says, I have this problem. I want you to make this thing for me. Yeah. Well, 
9.9 times out of 10, yeah. no one actually knows exactly what they need at that point. They definitely understand that they have a problem. And a lot of the, your traditional services setups would kind of say, okay, well, let's have a couple of meetings and we'll tell you about that. And then you give them a proposal and people want to know what's it going to take, how much time, how much money. Mm -hmm. And it's next to impossible. It actually is impossible to be completely accurate after a couple of meetings to know what it's going to take to make something to solve a problem. The problem might even not be the exact right one to solve mm -hmm. at that point. Mm -hmm. So you end up with this kind of traditional services um, uh, engagement structure where you're either overcharging because you're trying to create a buffer to account for all of that risk. Like we need some, that run we need, we need some runway to figure this out. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right. And, um, and no one yeah. wants to feel like they're being overcharged sure. and, um, or you end up kind of, uh, having to, uh, undercharge, yeah. um, or you, it seems yeah. reasonable at you the over time. You over-deliver, you over-service. Yeah. To actually, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it yeah. seems reasonable at the time, but then <laughs> the scope changes or the problem evolves and you end up, uh, as a, a services company, that's not a way to build a great business nope. by basically, yeah. you know, having, you know, no margin or actually losing money yeah. on deals. And from the start with uh, Gennaro, um, we wanted to be able to be a bit bigger and a bit better every year. Mm -hmm. You know, that was kind of our, our goal. And we realized that the biggest immediate hurdle to, to solving, achieving that was if we can't have a predictable business model, we're going in on our deals where we can be sure that every deal is a good deal. And that we can have a predictable business growth based on that. Um, and so we, th we thought well, we have to solve this problem of uh, understanding what we're getting into and what our customers are getting into. Because that's the other thing in service is you want repeatability. You want your customers to be customers for a long time. Sure. Um, you know, most of our customers we've had for years. Mm -hmm. And the way not to have customers for a long time is to right from the get-go say, yeah, we're going to do this and it's going to cost this much mm -hmm. and just completely um, not hit that. Yeah. Either you're taking double the time or it costs twice as much. It's the quickest way to have a bad relationship. Right. So uh, we thought, well, you know, maybe the right way to do this is instead of going in and saying, hey, you know, let's figure out what the budget is and put a proposal together that fits that, let's just work together for a handful of weeks, you know, four to eight weeks, um, us and the, and, and the customer, let's figure out what the problem is. Let's really understand it from all the stakeholders, what success means mm -hmm. and what we think the hypothesis is of okay. what it is that needs to be made. Then let's actually uh, together vet that out. Let's prove that hypothesis uh, or invalidate it. So Figure out what you more, really need. A much more intensive needs assessment. Yeah, exactly. On. And then actually just being honest and saying, well, this is how we work at Janeiro. So part of our engagement is a rather lengthy needs assessment, mm -hmm. which sets us up for a much more fruitful, advantageous, longer term partnership. Yeah, so we, but that's like you account for that from the get go. Yeah, we call that our rapid alignment. Okay. If you start a project with us, that's how you start. Got it. And um, you know, it's on average they're around six weeks, six, eight weeks. Cool. And 
they uh, the first week or two, we're not talking about technology. We're talking about what the actual problem is sure. and what success means to yeah. solve it. Uh, then we uh, come up with a kind of hypothesis of what we think the solution is mm -hmm. um, together. Yeah. And then we break out into technical design, product management, and user experience into three tracks that are kind of interrelated and they're cross-pollinating the whole time. So we have an architect uh, team, an experience team, and a product team who's kind of intermixing with the, with the client um, on the design. So by the end of that rapid alignment, we know exactly what the, the solution needs to be, uh, what kind of the first big iteration of that's going to be, you know, the MVP, uh, but also what the roadmap looks like. Mm -hmm. And it's a solution that we arrive at together and we're doing this in, in uh, weeks. And then that's the basis for our kind of bigger, now we're going to build it. Okay. And, you know, that can be, sometimes it's four months, sometimes it's a year. It yeah. depends, and, and just for the to get to the first thing. Um, but our success rate then on on time, on budget, is staggeringly high. Mm. Um, and part of that is because you do that collective work up front to really vet the scope out. It's also because once you do that, the kind of intervening time between when you actually deliver the technology at the end and when you start yeah. is interspersed with these moments of, um, oh, well, we kind of have this changing dependency or now we want to do this instead of that. Because you're working from a baseline, everybody's aligned at the start. Yeah. It's usually our, our customers will come to us and say, well, we want to do this now. Realize, we realize that that's totally out of what we talked about what do you think if we did uh, took this out instead, or maybe if you want to expand your team, like it's actually a constructive discussion because things always change. This is a fast moving kind of uh, environment when you're dealing with this kind of stuff, but it's constructive yeah. and, um, and it's a collaboration. And so rad is that rapid alignment, that part up front yeah. design development is the execution Got and it. that's our methodology. So and that's the double D. So it's R R A, the rapid alignment and then design development. Yeah. 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 And we would like to consider ourselves rad individuals as well, right. but yeah. that's kind of, you know, so. I can attest to that. I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to hang on. I mean, we've actually had a beer before, but I'd like that's to, have, I'd like to have a beer with you at North station after this. No doubt. Um, <laughs> that's great. I appreciate that. And, all right, cool. So, Let's talk about how the hell you got here, because yeah. it's a super interesting journey, <laughs> which involves journeys in between the journeys where you're scaling mountains with your Jeep. But first, let's go all the way back. Where did you grow up? What was, sure. you know, let's talk about your, your current business partner, your forever partner, and your brother, your yep. partner in crime. Um, where did you guys where did you guys grow up? Yes, we, we grew up um, 15, 20, depending on traffic, actually, <laughs> if there's no traffic, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but 15 or 20 minutes north of Boston in Linfield. Um, uh, my mom actually still lived there as of a month ago. She just moved to your neck of the woods in Beverly. Nice. Um, but uh, yeah, we were born and raised there. Um, our family is kind of from the Boston area. In fact, that window that you were just working out of that overlooks the north end you can see the street where my grandfather grew up nice. so it's kind of cool you know circling back but uh grew up in linfield um uh you know we got our first computer when i was um i think three or four and i'm oh, wow. 37 now crap 
I feel like that's the first time I've had to say I'm 37. It's my birthday was last month. Um, so I grew up in the grew up in the 80s. just kind of mid 80s, and personal computers were kind of just really arriving in in households. And my mom told me that she came downstairs one day, and I was just banging on a command line prompt and actually doing things. And she was like, she, she like said to my brother, she's like, "What the hell is he doing?" He's like, "I don't know. You know, he's just been." Uh, and um, for me, growing up, uh, computers were always kind of like Nintendo. Yeah. Now, I did have a Nintendo, but yeah, uh, I, they were just fun. The like responsiveness of a computer, like you kind of... I was, just liked interfacing yeah, with it. Yeah. I liked making stuff. Yeah. I've always liked making stuff. And it was kind of like a um, uh, this little um, kit that I had on a daily basis where I could get it to do things and try different stuff and create little programs. So I've, I've um, all of my development and coding has always been self-taught. I just kind of, it always started from wanting to make something. Yeah. You know, I just pick when you're, when you're a kid, you know, it's usually something dumb, but you know, the idea of wanting to make something or make a little game. And uh, I remember when we got a computer with a modem. So I was actually able to connect to the kind of infant stages of the internet. And um, that was just... What year was that, roughly? Um, it was... Or how old were you? Uh, I was thinking... I, I was in elementary school. Okay. Um, and uh, I was in elementary school. I first got our modem. Um, I was able to get onto. to... Um, like bulletin board systems, BBSs, if anybody, uh, I'm sure there's, there's some of you out here remember these things. Um, some but geeks you, out there getting yeah, excited right now. You could yeah. dial up yeah. to them yeah. and, you know, start Plug into the know, world. interfacing with people. Um, and of course, when you're a kid, you instantly want to gravitate towards the most like mischievous ones and you yeah. start learning a lot about, um, not just kind of building programs, but being able to take advantage of them and, um, this this was the infant stages of the security industry. You know, most of the the hackers of of today kind of just started out of you know curiosity, wanting to make programs, but also take them apart. Mm -hmm. um, and so there was a lot of a lot to learn from uh, by uh, um, just poking around the different parts of the internet. And then the web came along, mm -hmm. and um, uh, it was it was kind of a, a whole new way to be able to collaborate and and share information and I just I just got intrigued you know it was uh, both with what you could do with with the internet and the web um, and you didn't have to be a programmer to to get into that there were plenty of people that just kind of loved the idea of the web and free information sharing stuff but for me who was really into programming and into networking it was like take that the, the first pc that was like a kit yeah this was just like the mother load yeah. like you could make anything yeah and you could do stuff on a on a broad scale and i just got hooked and i've been making stuff on it ever since yeah really like my my day hasn't really changed in you know 30 since years it, since, since i was at school yeah yeah um, I'm kind of still always wanted to do the same stuff. And, um, you know, it's funny because most of my friends, all none of my friends growing up really 
knew anything about computers. You know, mm -hmm. it was just kind of, it was something that, and, and I never, uh, um, I think with the, with the internet and the web, it was like most everybody that I knew that had knew anything about computers, I knew online. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. that was at a whole nother kind of community and set of friends that, you know, we learned from each other and, and, and did stuff. And I still know some of them today. I was just going to ask, were there people that you met, like when you were, you know, an adolescent that, that you actually work with today or stay in touch with today? Yeah, absolutely. Really? Yeah. And what was the first thing that you made? like you built that you like shared with the world? <laughs> like what was one of those fun, silly, like, ah. I guess the statute of limitations is probably <laughs> around. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, when you're, uh, um, you know, in, in my younger days, some of the first, uh, actually, no. So I'll say first I made some programs to manage, uh, um, like I had a bunch of tapes and CDs. Yeah. So I remember the one of the first uh, database programs that I made was just for like managing my music. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, that was probably like one of the more innocent ones. Um, <laughs> but uh, some of the stuff, you know, some of the programs that I made were kind of like to uh, poke holes in other programs. Yeah. Um, or to... Uh, um, uh, to be able to kind of, um, uh, you know, do like information gathering on yeah. networks. I was really yeah. into network toolkits. Yeah. Um, so, uh, a lot of the, um, uh, a lot of the early programming and learning a lot about distributed programming was building some of those network toolkits that could go out and kind of, uh, communicate with a bunch of different systems and learn about them and evaluate some of their network stacks and all that stuff. Interesting. I'm starting to see the pieces come together early for like how your life's coming full circle now working on decentralized technologies, which we'll eventually get to. Um, well, so what, at what point, so as you were this young sort of self-taught, as you said, uh, computer science sort of coding whiz, at what point did you or your parents identify like, oh, I could actually go work for like a business, even though yeah. I'm 14, 15, 16 years old. Like you were working in high school yeah. in tech, right? How did that come about? Um, so <laughs> my, uh, when, I think when I was, I've always liked to work. You know, yeah. I, I've always enjoyed yeah. working. Um, so initially, I think my first job was when I was 12 or 13, I was working at a driving range. Um, oh. <laughs> like yeah. from selling the buckets Richardson's? to, yeah, uh, actually <laughs> to driving the thing around yeah. and cool. picking the balls up. Um, but, uh, I remember my mom one summer being like, you're getting a full-time job because it's going to keep you out of trouble and it'll be good for you. Um, and, uh, my first two jobs were landscaping and then masonry, nice. which were, um, which were great and like great yeah. life skills to have. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I was kind of like, um, you know, maybe, uh, I, I think I started looking around at some other, some other stuff that might be like, you know, computer related. So that'd be fun to, to get a job that was where I could do some stuff with a computer and ended up finding a um, uh, an opportunity at a regional ISP when I was 16 called Shornet. Mm -hmm. That this was back in the days when you, 
it wasn't just like Comcast and Verizon who gave you your internet access and broadband to your house. Most people didn't have broadband yet. I didn't have it yet. Mm -hmm. So all of your internet access was dial up um, or some would have DSL or ISDN. Um, and uh, web hosting wasn't just by Amazon. You know, there were actually a lot of small regional um, companies who did that. And Shornet in the Northeast was actually a really renowned, um, mm -hmm. you know, great operation out of Lynn. And the founder of Shornet was um, particularly unique in that he uh, hired a lot of um, young young people, not even out of high school yet, who he felt like just kind of you know had a um, good proficiency. In, in stuff. And so it was cool. Uh, they were doing it. Um, there were, there was a tech support job. Okay. So, um, it's like, man, this, this looks awesome. I just like go and kind of be at a computer for a while. Um, so I joined the tech support team and, uh, had a blast. Yeah. And so I would leave high school and go straight to Shornet and work like the, after, you know, the night shift. Basically. And like three, if I'm doing my math hours. right, this is about 98. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what's been right around yeah. '98, um, and uh, it was it was cool for me because I was able to take some of the the stuff that I'd just been doing on my own, just um, kind of hacking around, and um, start to see how some of these skills could be applied in the real world, and um, and also some of the stuff that I had learned, especially working with Unix systems and and working, uh, understanding uh, the fundamentals of networking and TCPIP and, and uh, um, how that can be valuable. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think I spent about a year in tech support and then because I knew Unix pretty well, because um, I've been banging around on Unix systems for years at that point, yeah. um, I got moved into the system engineering group and um, then when I was in the system engineering group, um, you know, I was kind of creating some creating some programs and tooling and stuff uh, just to kind of help some of the work they were doing. But also uh, we got um, we had some security issues. You know, everybody has security issues and there were some security issues. And, um, uh, you know, I had, um, uh, was able to provide some insight into how it happened and how we might be able to prevent some of that from happening again. And um, then it was kind of like, hey, you know about security? Well, um, why don't you do that too? Yeah. There's like CSOs yeah. didn't exist so back from, then. Yeah. Uh, from your building and deconstructing days of, of, you know, of earlier, right? So you yeah. kind of understood how to understand vulnerabilities and systems. And mm -hmm. that was like a newer acquired skill. So regardless of your age, you you had as good an opportunity as anyone to sort of hone that skill. No one knew about it back yeah. then. I mean, like the, the, I mean, the, the, a small group of people really kind of knew about this stuff. There were no books mm -hmm. on, on, uh, application security, sure. software security. There were no chief security officers. You know, there was none of that. Um, right. it was, uh, basically like, you know, it was, it was like, uh, um, uh, there were people trying to fight the good fight to keep people out and there were way more people trying to get in and it's just like an arms race that, that yeah. couldn't be won. It's and, a numbers game, yeah. And uh, Stacked against. And when you're a service provider, which is what we were 
um, yeah. at the time. Um, and I'm kind of going forward, you know, two years now because I had graduated high school and um, decided, you know, not to, to just kind of stay full time and, and, and not do college. But um, when you're a service provider, your, your business is to let people in and provide service yeah. really, really hard to, yeah. to be secure. Um, and trying to find attacks is just not, it's not feasible because they don't have to attack. They basically are already in. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had to um, come up with some ideas for how to track people that were already in and just kind of make sure that they didn't get into the really important places. And there was no technology that could do that. I mean, even the the security systems at the time that were available, the IDS systems, the TAC prevention, were really in their early stages. But there was nothing that could track people that were in. <laughs> like if they got in, there was nothing that existed. Um, so we started to um, experiment with some stuff. You yeah. Know, just um, because there's a tons of different ways to attack, but once you're in, there's really a small set of things you do. Mm-hmm. So everybody does the same stuff. You create back doors, you create tunnels, you kind of move around in a, in a way that, um, you know, you try to maintain, you know, secrecy. Um, but those patterns, if you know what to look for, you can find. You can identify. Um, so uh, we, um, so I kind of made some stuff you know, primitively that would find some of that. Um, and uh, um, at least at a concept level, called my brother who was over at Forest Research and was kind of, checked with him said hey you know no one's doing this and i think it's important you know i think there's like this whole segment of uh security that is just completely untapped um and he poked around uh with some of the analysts at the time and realized that yeah no one is no one's addressing what happens after someone breaks in. Yeah, It's just there's this kind of false sense of security that you get. It says, well, if I put a security system on the door, no one can get in. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, what happens when they do get in? You know, what happens when they do social engineering mm-hmm. to get in? You know, mm-hmm. or um, uh, they just do something that you don't see, which is completely, you know, common and happens all the time. Um there was nothing to address those cases. So mm-hmm. we, we, um, I left the, the company that I was at, we made a prototype and we made a company around mm-hmm. that. And this was now at this point, uh, September 11th had also just happened. And there was a, um, focus on other ways we might be vulnerable as a, as a country, sure. you know? And, and, uh, so that includes business and government. And digitally speaking. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, you know, I think it was an interesting time. Um, the timing was good, I think, to be to say we want to create a create a security company, because mm-hmm. um, there was a lot of attention on that. And I think especially where we were saying we're we're here to solve a newer problem that's more serious and more sophisticated. Um, and we did that. We raised venture money, completely venture backed, and we did that for. Um, almost seven years and um, what was the name of that company? Intrusic and we had uh, and I learned I learned a, a couple of really good lessons first I think we had a amazing mousetrap we could we could do things that no one else could do we could find things that no one else could find our 
um, one of our uh, my favorite things is when we would go and do kind of a proof of concept and we'd uh, stick our box in, you know, for a uh, do kind of a pilot, stick our box in um, next to the other stuff. And now we're talking about companies that, you know, in the Fortune 50 that have everything. Sure. And we would get their permission to, to basically kind of backdoor their network and do yeah. some things yeah. to say, first, you're going to see two things. One, nothing that you have is going to catch this. Yeah. And two, ours will. And it, it, it never... It never stopped being uh, being fun to see that play out right. every time. Um, but uh, we were uh, we had the best mousetrap, but we were way ahead of the curve. No you know, chief, no chief uh, security officers yet, right? No chief security officers, and even you know at that time it tended to be it would tend to fall under the CIO. Sure, but they were so far behind the eight ball yeah. across the board, like. We were our they system, were horizontal generalist across the business and not really focused in on security. Well, if you if you were if you were to take security, yeah, most of them hadn't even rolled out general antivirus protection. Right, and we're saying we have a system that's so new, there's not even a bucket for what we do yet. Yeah, um, and so uh, we we spent a lot of time and resources educating the market, educating the analysts on what we were doing. And it made it really hard to translate. We had a lot of success in the like Fortune 50, Fortune 100, mm-hmm. translating that to uh, you know the um, kind of the rest of the market, who market. still we were way yeah. we were so early was was really really difficult. Um, so ultimately, um, you know, after seven and a half years, um, my brother and I, um, you know, kind of felt like it was a good time for us to. Um, you know, to move on and like try some new things, right? And we thought, well, let's let's uh, let's kind of try to get away from the security industry. Mm-hmm. And um, thought, well, what what's maybe a, a on the other side of the spectrum? Yeah. But, oh, music's on the consumer, other side of the yeah. spectrum. The consumer. And, and you had tinkered with music. That was one of your first tinkerings, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so we had this idea this was now around like 2007 2008 so you're kind of on the back end of things like napster and limewire and illegitimate models that proved that people want music digitally regardless and and effectively uh um you had an ipod as a delivery device now which was people were loving Um, but no way to really kind of get and ingest a lot of good music and good information mm-hmm. um, uh, unless it was iTunes, yeah. say. And iTunes, even their catalog was kind of limited then. Yeah. I had an um, RDO. Yeah. Like, yeah, I do. I was I like do. the counter, I was like part of the counterculture that had RDO. <laughs> I thought it was really cool. Yeah, how'd that work out in the end? I mean, for a couple of years, I like bossed up with that thing and then I realized like I was not, I was not consuming music content in the way that all my here's what were and, and I started to, to fall into the to the proper mousetrap so yeah so we um we had this uh idea for kind of a a viral music discovery distribution type model and um we created the technology for it we bootstrapped it all ourselves we kind of uh had the means you know coming off the last one to be able to to self-fund and um uh 
launched an actual company mm-hmm. um, that we called Surge. Mm-hmm. Uh, had a killer party at South by Southwest mm-hmm. before South by Southwest was the big place to do do everything. Late two thousands, yeah, that's still early. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, um, I think we we got into it enough to have we had a viable product, real site, real users. Um, but we're able to, to see that the, the model for music distribution, just the business model for music in general was so convoluted there. It was pretty much impossible to make money unless you were an Apple, you know, unless you were iTunes or, um, or doing events. If you're doing live stuff, events, totally different story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think all the artists effectively have been coming to that conclusion as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we felt like the business model was, was a bit shaky. Um, we didn't want to go and bring in any kind of traditional investment because we weren't sure that this was a kind of a horse we wanted to bet on long term. Um, uh, we were kind of feeling it out. So we thought, well how should we bring in some resources to be able to give this thing a fair shake and see if it's worth it? Um, you know, we can, we don't want to bring in any kind of investors. So let's be creative. We thought, you know, we're pretty good at making technology to solve some problem, mm-hmm. whether it be, you know, sophisticated counterintelligence yeah. or music distribution, uh, we're versatile. So let's see if there's um, organizations or people in kind of our network, especially starting around Boston, um, that might find that valuable and we can make technology to solve problems for them. Yeah. And, and invest in your versatility. Yeah. Yeah. Within a, down on that. Within a month, um, we had we had over a million dollars in bookings. And um, it's not to say like every month is always like that, but I think it, uh, um, what it showed to us right out of the gate was that there's a, there's a, there's a market fit for what Janeiro digital was, was then how Janeiro digital was birthed, like what it was going to bring to market. What year? So what year was that? That would have been, um, here's it 2019, um, that was about 10 years so ago. We had, yeah. yeah, it was a little over 10 years ago. Interesting. So, um, yeah, we just, we, we realized that there's this need for, um, you know, really um, a combination of you know, business strategy and architectural strategy, technology strategy to make really um, sophisticated things, mm-hmm. um, you know, to, to create technology that can drive businesses that isn't trivial. And, um uh, and that's really been our sweet spot. Yeah. We've, we've just our like I said, our, our goal is to get a bit bigger and a bit better every year. And, um, we've, we've done it. We, yeah. you know, we started, um, you know, our first projects were I think, you know, a bit smaller scale. Now we're working with some of the biggest companies in the world. Yeah. Um, the biggest brands on some hugely mission critical problems. Um, but in essence, we're still doing the same thing we did when we started. Just you know. Yeah. So I want to I want to talk about some of the bigger projects you're working on and uh, how you've come sort of full circle on sort of how you were a young 
child, a young, you were a young child sort of exposed to the world wide web um, and what that meant to the world. And then here you are as like a young man, a husband, a father, and you're collaborating <laughs> with Sir Tim Berners-Lee, yeah. the creator of the World Wide Web on things. So, so like that's a nice little teaser for where I want to take the conversation yeah. in a second. But but real quick, I want to double click on something you you glazed over quickly, and I just want I feel like it's interesting to share with listeners. I'm personally curious. Was it even an option for you when you were graduating from St. John's uh, in Danvers, St. John's Prep, mm-hmm. 18 to go to college? Or at that point, you'd so ex- been exposed and basically maneuvered multiple positions in the private sector. Mm-hmm. Um, was it a difficult decision not to go to college or was it an easy decision? It definitely was a difficult decision because it's what you do. You know, especially when you go to, when you go to St. John's, they're preparatory school to prepare you to go to college basically. Yeah. Um, in, uh, they did a a great job with me because I felt like they prepared me to have the option not to. Because it's just such a great institution. They customized it for you. So, like, they knew you could go that way. So, they were preparing you well, for all options. It was just such a good program that I think probably, you know, yeah. four years at St. John's is probably harder than four years at some colleges, you know. Yeah. And, um, but I felt confident enough to even have to, to make a choice not to. But, um, uh, coming out of my senior year, um, you know, I was, kind of deciding uh, if I was going to go to, to uh, BU or Northeastern mm-hmm. and um, ended up saying, yeah, I'll go to Northeastern because I they have I like their computer science program. Sure. And I like that um, they have this notion of kind of, you know, work, study, and yeah. that means that I can stay on where I'm working now. Sure. Kind of, you know, figure out a way to finagle something. Yeah. Um, have a foot in both worlds. But I remember having sitting down. I had a conversation with my mom, um, uh, who's amazing, by the way. Uh, and I told her, I said, you know, I already know what I want to do. So, and I learned so much every day doing what I'm doing at work. I'm actually worried that I'm going to go to school and miss out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, that was a, that was my real yeah. legitimate concern. And yeah. she said. Uh, um, she took me seriously, but also said, if you don't try it now, the chances that you ever will are, are very slim yeah. trying to go to college. Yeah. And um, at least Fair. if you go and try it out, you know, try, go do one semester. It can give you more certainty. At a minimum, you yeah. can look back and know that you made the right choice because you at sure. least knew what you were choosing between. Sure. Um, and that made a lot of sense to me. So yeah. I did that. Uh-huh. Um, I went to Northeastern. Um, I went to one semester, um, but after six weeks, I left. Yeah, because uh, I just wasn't. Every day, I I just felt like I was falling behind. Just yeah. you know, not getting a chance to focus on the work that I wanted to focus on. Yeah, and um, so that's what I uh, that's what I did. I say that with the caveat that I think college is amazing, and for. Um, the vast majority of people, it's the right decision to yeah. go and and be in a place that's going to foster, you know, learning and being creative and being yeah. constructive. Um, I was in such a unique situation yeah. that I not only kind of had an opportunity, but I was on a career path that I was growing on a daily basis and I was really, really happy. Yeah. So I don't think um, that decision 
is necessarily the right one for everyone, but it was the right one for me. Cool. Sounds like mom popped up a couple times with some some helpful advice. She was the one that was like, "Hey, this landscaping thing and stuff is cool, but like, why don't you look at like a go get a, a job that stimulates you a little more?" Yeah, she's um, all right. That's awesome. Uh, thanks for sharing that story. All right, so so back in back sort of let's say you know ten, you know ten years ago, two thousand nine ish time frame, you start you know you you realize there's this product market fit for sort of this this organization that can be very versatile in solving complex problems in market. You got a million in, in billings, the first, you know, first month of business, like, and you said, so I got it made, maybe necessarily every month, but like, wow, like we're, on, like we're on to something here. Like, this is awesome. Um, so when was it that, like, you know, what are some of the bigger projects that you're most proud of? Yep. Um, and then of course, like, I'd really love to unpack sort of, you know, how long, you know, when were you first exposed to and when did you begin working with uh, Sir Tim Berners-Lee, sure, yeah. the inventor of the World Wide Web, and and you're working on him specifically on decentralized technologies and it seems to be a focus you've really leaned into. Yeah. As an, as an entrepreneur, I would love sort of your thoughts to share with the Boston community as to why you are um, investing a lot of your time yep. in projects uh connected to decentralized absolutely yeah um so uh in general you know projects that i'm uh, particularly proud of um the first part of that answer is everything that we've made here i'm as proud of one as another because there's nothing that we have made here that hasn't really solved a problem for mm -hmm. some organization like the stuff that we build is really uh it's meant it's either b2b or it's for a big business for you know that they're using kind of internally so our stuff gets used mm -hmm. it it's the it, when when we deploy something it's kind of instant change for yeah. that business There's immediate like utility that impacts the organization yeah yeah exactly and so we get to really see and talk to our um, our users of our technology, and I'll never forget uh, we um, uh, created a, some technology for a major um, energy provider, and the the users are the people in the monitoring and diagnostic center. It looks like a NASA control room, literally, right. and these are people that have spent twenty, thirty years in the field. They understand how this stuff operates to a level that uh, is unparalleled. And they're spending 90% of their time dealing with inefficiencies, 10% of their time applying their know-how. Mm -hmm. And um, that's really unfortunate. Right? Yeah. And we, uh, we rolled out an entirely new system. We displaced five or six other existing systems they were using mm -hmm. from like all big names you know mm -hmm. you know the uh um, the kind of the big industrial technology providers we said we're gonna we're gonna get rid of all of it we're gonna create one seamless system uh that makes an efficient experience that can process uh data efficiently and do new things that and offers uniformity across many different aspects of mm -hmm. the job yeah and i remember like we got literally like a, a standing ovation some of our team members wow. when they showed up from the people in that um 
in that uh, in that center, and there were the people who were using the application all day. And um, you know, it's it's those kinds of moments for me that um, make me really proud mm-hmm. because it's anybody who's built anything knows that it's hard to build something well. Mm-hmm. But when you build something that's really sophisticated and that is so mission critical that part of its responsibility is, is monitoring the cooling pipes to a nuclear power plant uh, and making sure that they don't, you know, hit a level of vibration that they, you know, that they get displaced or something or yeah. that the, you know, the temperature is, is flowing accurately and predicting failure. Um, when you can land that plane really nicely to, to a level that the, the users who kind of are, are tasked with interfacing with it um, are that happy yeah. is a good feeling. That's real um, impact. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, that's, that's a good response. That's like yeah. if I asked you, who's your favorite kid? Yeah, you know, it's like <laughs> yeah. I love them all. You know, yeah. like it's like every single project is like its own baby. Yeah, it's like who's here right now? Uh, but no, that's that, that's that's actually a really fair way to respond to that. Um, can we can we get? I would love to get into what you're working on. Cool. Yeah, with the inventor of the World Wide Web. I sure. Just, like so interesting. It's cool. Yeah. I mean, it's it's been a um, it's been a real dream come true for me to work with um, to work with Tim. Um, you know, the background for anybody that, that doesn't know. So Sir Tim Berners-Lee was working at uh, CERN in, um, uh, in Europe, which is where, you know, like now they have the, lar- the Hadron Collider and doing all types of crazy physics stuff. Yeah. Um, and he came up with the system for information management that ultimately became the, the web at CERN. And <clears throat> so the first browser, HTTP, you know, yeah. bringing, um, uh, incorporating you know, hypertext into uh, into UI and, and uh, um, creating a, a distributed protocol where you could have information on different systems and link them together. You know, Tim came up with all of that, and uh, but he came up with it while he was at CERN. So CERN intellectual property, um, and Tim was able to lobby to make sure that it was free mm-hmm. and open, and that's what. And people say, well, he gave it away. It never, the web never would have happened if he didn't do that. Yeah. Um, That's the most important part of his legacy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, um, and he's done amazing things on top of it since. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that was, um, you know, that, I want to say that was 1989. And the web just had its, um, uh, you know, 30th anniversary. Um, uh, so, Growing up, as I mentioned, when I was a kid, you know, the, the, the web became like this next level way to get information and share information and yeah. just learn how to do stuff, keep yeah. making things with technology. So, um, you know, I told Tim, uh, he didn't directly teach me everything I know, but it was like, he built the classroom. Yeah. And, um, so I, I, uh, um, you know, owe a lot to him for that. a lot of so, gratitude his way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, so it's it's really it's a trip it's awesome you know working with them you know on a literally pretty much on a daily basis i mean usually he's here yeah. in the office uh i think he's working from home today when he's in the states at least yeah. this year um but uh 
beyond just the how cool it is to get a yeah. chance to to be working directly with them um the problem that we're tackling i really i believe in you know mm-hmm. for a lot of different reasons yeah but uh to give some context of the problem when tim originally invented the web um he always had it in his mind that it was a read write he called it the read write web a collaborative space where mm. it wasn't just about someone publishes information and others can link to it and read it. Um, that on its own was so revolutionary that the whole thing took mm-hmm. off. Um, but he always believed that the web was a place where people kind of posted data um, and others could collaborate and read and write it um, in a safe way mm-hmm. with a secure model, essentially meaning that you had your data and I had my data. And if I wanted to be able to share it or have an application that could utilize it or a service that could utilize it, um, I could decide to allow them to do that. But my data is still my data. Mm-hmm. Uh, the web was always envisioned as a as a decentralized distributed system. Mm-hmm. And where it uh, evolved to and where we are today is that it's a very it's become very centralized. Yeah. You know, a lot of um, a lot of our data lives in a small number of silos that we don't have control over. Um, and there's some, uh, you know, there's been some. You can point to some benefits of that as just far as you know scaling and you know, connecting us and all of that. Um, but but really, this whole thing got away from us. Um, it, there is so much of who we are now lives in a database or multiple databases somewhere um, completely outside the realm of, of our control, you mm-hmm. know, or, or even, you know, in some cases our consent. Uh, and I think over the last few years, people have understood and realized that maybe that's not the best thing. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe um, that can even be dangerous um it's not just about uh hey it's creepy that you know um as i'm scrolling through i'm getting these ads that seem to be very targeted to yeah. stuff that i've been doing yeah um stuff but, i've been saying yeah. yeah but but more so when um you know the ability to to conduct disinformation campaigns or information campaigns and leverage this infrastructure that we've created to be able to push out information immediately to large swaths of people um and uh you know influence that, opinions influence that, you know that yeah. people can be influenced and yeah. and when you have a a lot of your information out there um that makes it that much more easier to do and i don't think people appreciate it like that um there's been uh so um i think the the problem that we're trying to solve or that we've set out to solve um, is to, uh, as Tim likes to say, re-decentralize the web mm-hmm. uh, to kind of rebalance things and uh, extend the web to um, give people control over their data so that you know your data is effectively in a place that you can put your arms around, mm-hmm. but also be able to put it to work for you. Sure. So, it's, you know, information or anything is no good if you just stick it in a safe and never do anything with it. Right. Now, if you have a beautiful necklace, yeah. 
um, uh, and but you put it in a safe and never wear it, what good is having it? You know, yeah. um, and uh, data is kind of it's kind of like that. You got to be able to protect it, mm-hmm. but you also have to be able to get value out of it. Mm-hmm. And but you should be in charge of the value that you get, and you should get an equitable return for making that data available for applications or services to access. So uh, Tim has really been working towards this since when he created the web. This was always his fulfilling, his full vision of the web was making it this collaborative rewrite space. It's just that that collaborative part is way harder. Mm-hmm. It, it, it requires way more uh, infrastructure to be in place, more other uh, standards uh, from a security standpoint, from a performance and scalability standpoint. Yeah. So it wasn't really something that uh, was um, you know, generally kind of achievable or, or feasible, maybe is a better word, um, until several years ago uh, when, and you know, Tim's also the chairman of the W3C, kind of advancing web standards and improving them. Yeah. Um, and had been working on evolving a lot of these standards that we now use to be able to, to solve this problem. Um, so he started this project at MIT called Solid. Right. And um, Solid is kind of like the, the recipe of bringing these different open standards and protocols together to allow people to um, control their data and mm-hmm. have it in this thing called pod that you can then use to yeah. create new applications and new kind of experiences around. Um, and it, the project was successful enough at MIT that then he realized this next phase of the web, this next kind of decentralized phase, um, he wanted to be, I think, more more involved in how um, uh, the industry adopts it and how the um, uh, how different businesses and organizations use it. You know, with the web, it yeah. was kind of here it is. Yeah. You know, in a in I think a, in in great ways, bad ways. You know, they're um, mm-hmm. it, it's become so pervasive. You can point to all kinds of you know, positive and negative um, ways that it that it grew. Um, I think he wanted to be more of a participant in it. I'm not going to put words in his mouth, but uh, but he decided he was going to create kind of a startup as well that would help try to be a steward to bring this technology forward. And that startup's called Interrupt. And his business partner um, at Interrupt, um, who's the CEO. Um, uh, you know, John Bruce, uh, we've had a long relationship with, uh, my, my brother and I going back to our security days and, um, he, uh, kind of came to us and said, Hey, you know, um, we need to, th- you guys are great at solving big problems, you know, hard problems, technology problems. Well, this is a pretty big one. And, um, is this something that you'd want to collaborate, you know, collaborate with on us, uh, you know, with us on and um, I was instantly really intrigued, you know, because I think it was hitting on a lot of the, a lot of stuff that personally I cared a lot about and um, uh, said, okay, well, yeah. uh, let's go, let's have a session with, with Tim. You know, there was, I think it was on like Tuesday and Tim was doing a session that Friday in MIT with some other people working on this 
work in the solid project, which is completely open, you know, open yeah. standard, open source, open protocols. And um, I joined the session and um, just was continued to really like what I, you know, what I was hearing. Um, you know, really enjoyed the interactions with Tim and kind of hit off, hit it off with them uh, with the other team members. And I was just hooked after that. Yeah. And then I was like spending, you know, all day, you know, days, nights, weekends, getting immersed in all of this and, and um, really trying to understand how do we take this and make this ecosystem work. Mm-hmm. And there is, we're, we're creating stuff right now as yeah. far as, standards, protocols, uh, enabling technologies uh, for how you create decentralized infrastructure, how you extend the web, you know, with this decentralized infrastructure, and then what kind of problems you can solve with it. And, um, you know, the, uh, we're, it's like we're, we're working on this in a few different elements. Um, I'm now a, uh, I'm an editor of the standard with Tim and a few other people, the solid standard. Uh, we're kind of collaborating with, with his company in to help like evolve, um, you know, the, the enabling, you know, some of the, like the core like technologies, um, you know, my, uh, my company is creating some technologies to help enable, um, uh, uh, you know, enable the kind of decentralized adoption. And then we're applying this technology uh, to real world problems <clears throat> at some of the biggest places in the world, mm. literally, you know, the, uh, whether it be social yeah. health care, pharmaceutical, yeah. um, you know, I'm, I, I don't know that I'm at liberty to say, you know, exact names uh, just yet. So I'm going to yeah. do the safe thing and not yeah. use any specific names, but um can you give an example or like anecdote of like how it's being applied? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think the the most obvious use case when you talk about being able to control your data mm-hmm. um, is healthcare. Okay. Right. So uh, health data is uh, some of the most rich and complex information. It's some of the most private mm-hmm. to an individual. Your personal health is some of the most private data that you can have. So it's really important that uh, the idea that you can be more in control of it, where it lives and who has access to it and how they're accessing it um, is really attractive you know, to, to, I think, anybody. And I think it's, it's easy for someone to understand that, mm-hmm. that use case. Um, and uh, there's also a lot of regulations that are coming out in the... the um, uh, internationally about more responsible um, uh, use of health data mm-hmm. that organizations have to honor. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just not a lot of technology out there to solve that problem. Yeah. There's n- not very many at all. And uh, we're at this, re- we've, we're at this really neat intersection where, the introduction of solid into this equation um, fits a lot of these use cases where um, you need to give people kind of control over consented access to their information. Yeah. But you also got to allow them to do something with it. 
that's the other problem with most healthcare data now is, I mean, most people have like a healthcare portal and they log into and yeah. may be able to see some stuff, yeah. but you're not really able to put that data to work no. for you to yeah. make you healthier, make you, you yeah. know, uh, you're just like seeing uh, your results from your lab tests or a message from your doctor. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, so solid introduces not just the ability to kind of have more of a protective boundary of, around your stuff, but creates this opportunity to to make ecosystems of technology and applications that you as a person can decide if you want to use you can deploy it in your favor yeah and it can it can do stuff on on your behalf Mm -hmm. so that may be for example um if you're dealing with a um uh chronic condition that doesn't have a viable treatment pathway yet uh and and there are there may be a a uh, available therapy or clinical trial out there that could help you mm-hmm. that you don't know about. And mm-hmm. if your doctor doesn't know about it, yeah, you'll never know because yeah. they can't just call up a hospital and say, "Hey, who in your database has this?" Yeah, that's you can't. It's yeah. not. It's not allowed. You know. Right. So, uh, but you can create a network where you can have information that's stored uh, in your. Um, in your pod, your personal health record, mm-hmm. and be able to consent to, to enter into a, a network like that, where mm-hmm. um, you know the the people who are performing this research uh, can can kind of connect with you in a safe way, um, as an example. But yeah. you're kind of in control. Um, so uh, uh, there there's a lot of really cool um, uh, applications for it, purely just in in healthcare, but then. On a whole nother side of it, we're applying it to solve problems in inter, uh, international or internetwork telecom fraud. Okay. <laughs> you know, so we we found uh, you, know, you can use Solid, you can use the protocol uh, for information sharing between operator or carrier networks uh, as kind of a standards-based way to do decentralized distributed data sharing that scales. Um, and, uh, and actually eliminate a problem that costs most operators or carriers upwards of uh, 10 to $15 billion a year in loss Mm -hmm. conservatively. Mm -hmm. So we're working with some of the uh, largest telecoms um, and vendors in the world on using this to solve that. So it's kind of a broad spectrum. Wow. That's amazing. My mind's going in a bunch of different directions. Mine too. There's a, there's a a company that, because I I fundamentally, I personally believe like decentralized technologies and it, in some cases, which can result in maybe manifesting with some sort of like cryptography and like blockchain layers, like Mm -hmm. can, can transform any, like many of the problems across many industries, but like even in advertising, yeah. like the idea that's like a lot of the visionaries in advertising right now, which is a space I work in a lot, are interested in, in sort of giving the ownership of data back to, to, to humans for us to basically store and have uh, our data pods on our phones and, and then have, and then we like, op, like opt into and like put our data out into a network to pull to us the things that are relevant to us. So we actually basically our data participates in advertising and, and like commerce on our behalf. And, and, um, and in some, in some models, like even consumers are, can be compensated yeah. fractions of the, of the billions of dollars that are spent in advertising. Absolutely. Right. And that's, those are the types of models that I think will really 
flip industries on their head. Like, I, and I, just to stay on advertising for a second, because when you consider 85% of all ad dollars go to Google, Facebook, Amazon, like yeah. that's, it's a pretty needy space mm-hmm. to dedicate um, new sort of decentralized technologies to, because if you can find ways for people to take more ownership of their data and actually understand that they have like, an, that many humans have a, have a collective, um, combined shared interest mm-hmm. in, in approaching the advertising attention economy space in, in a similar way. Is there not a way to pull more, uh, pull from that 85% stranglehold mm-hmm. hold that the fangs have, right? Mm-hmm. Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, like they're really, they really, they dominate now, but they don't have to dominate forever. And I see decentralized technologies as a way to sort of pull back some of the power that those platforms have. Absolutely. I mean, we, we call it, um, in solid land, we call it permissionless innovation. Sure. Right now, because everything is so centralized on these different platforms, you really kind of, you need permission to be able to innovate or you can't innovate at all because right. they're doing it. Right. You know, and when the, because they have the data. And when you have the data, um, different developers or startups, they can create technologies that are kind of unencumbered by the restrictions of these centralized silos. um, And and I think that what's, uh, there's as much opportunity for those other tech companies to participate in this. Mm -hmm. Um, And we, I think that's a sign of health that they are, Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, as, as, uh, you know anyone else the idea is that the playing field should be level yeah. you know and that that's all and yeah. uh, I think what you mentioned you mentioned blockchain and I should point out yeah. that solid is not premised on the blockchain yeah. um, it's the thing that uh, and um, I, I I I think blockchains are, are great when you apply them to to you know the problems that they're they're uh, meant to uh, to solve like anything mm-hmm. you know uh, um, what I really like about Solid and what's um, both initially attracted me to it and kind of, you know, uh, has always been something that I've been been proud of with what we're doing, it's built on the web. It extends the web. Mm-hmm. The web is the most uh, scalable, most successful piece of network mm-hmm. technology that we've ever used as, you know, as, as, as humans, or at least, mm-hmm. you know, one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's already proven itself as a effectively a framework to be able to um, to do things at a global scale. You know, when Tim in 1989, when Tim kind of put this up and said, hey, you know, we can make web pages and people can link to different information and stuff. I don't think that anybody would have necessarily you know, guessed at that time that uh, we would today build everything on it. Yeah. Like every all the APIs that you use, they're web based. You know, they 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 use REST REST APIs um, that use the HTTP protocol. You yeah. know, they're they're all built on the web. We have moved as a um, uh, uh, we've moved all of our technology really to be web centric, and it uh, not only does it support it, it it thrives on that. And so using the web as the basis to create this, you know, kind of decentralized uh, infrastructure, um, it, it makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of risk that you remove because 
um, the world's infrastructure has been created to scale the web. Mm -hmm. And so we're just kind of standing on the shoulders of that. And mm -hmm. uh, that, uh, that makes a lot of sense. That means that we're able to use a lot of existing open standards. We're able to use a lot of existing technology that's yeah. already meant to work with it, uh, which means it works right now. Yeah. You know, it actually, this, this stuff works right now. Um, and uh, um, that, I think, has a lot um, going for it in terms of real adoption and sustainability. Mm -hmm. um, and solid, I, I always like to say, it's compatible with blockchain. It's not either it's or, right. just because yeah. we say it's decentralized. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. uh, you know with, with blockchains, when you want to have that, um, you know, immutable ledger with distributed consensus, and um, that's, it's, it's perfect for that. Like, that's yeah. what it's made, you know, it's, that's what it's made to do. Yeah. Um, but if you want to do more kind of rich storage of information, usually it ends up being pointers to, to uh, URLs. Yeah. Um, well, data that's stored in, in solid, you know, it's like a, uh, you know, uh, um, data centric web server. Um, you can have all of those kind of references be pointers to pods mm -hmm. that, you know, carry with them that same decentralized security model. Um, you know, they, they coexist quite well. Um, but you also can do a lot with a pod that, um, you may be using a blockchain to do, but maybe kind of like bringing a tank to a knife fight. Yeah. Right. So um, you can, uh, I think there's, it gives you a, a, some room to work kind of in the middle of the spectrum. Yeah. Uh, so um, it's, it's got some versatility there. So very yeah. complementary, And I think it's good for blockchains Yeah. because the issue that you can have with blockchains is that people just kind of go straight to one side of that spectrum and sure. say, we're going to put everything in blockchain. Sure. And then, you, it, and You're that gets alienated a, a bit. Yeah. It gets a lot of criticism. Yeah. Right. Um, but, uh, I think that, you know, everything's about, you know, finding a balance sure. and we're able to use, uh, this decentralized model um, with solid for where you want to have kind of really rich interoperable um, uh, data, kind of like an API for rich interoperable data, an API for you. Okay? Yeah. Um, but also be able to complement that with, um, you know, if, if you need them, uh, you know, uh, kind of immutable ledgers with, you know, distributed consensus. So they, uh, they line up really well. And yeah. also, I think the you know blockchains are great for identity, you know, global identity, distributed identity. Um, right. You see things like Sovereign and others. Right. Um, you know, Solid uh, requires a global, glo yeah. universally scoped identity. You can get those from blockchains as well. So that's yeah. another place where there's lots yeah. of synergy. And, and back to the ad example, that's why blockchain is currently being used. Like in like connected TV advertising, this company we work with, Madhive, they're basically what they're testing right now is just con first confirming the identity of inventory, right? So you have publishers and advertisers transacting. So publishers have inventory, but many publishers, many posers out there pose as publishers. So sometimes you have fraudulent inventory. Yeah. And then you also have fraudulent advertisers. Mm -hmm. I'm representing myself as this American brand, but I'm, you know, I'm a, a Russian that's trying to infiltrate the election. Like there's tons of examples, but those are examples people know, right? Yeah. But so actually verifying the identity mm -hmm. of what the inventory that exists at a 
open exchange in a real-time bidding atmosphere for advertising and the identity of the buyer. Yep. And then exposing that to the universe of people that transact in that system mm -hmm. is that's the best path, that is actually yeah. the best path forward for advertising. So it makes very logical sense that in that case you would you would actually apply blockchain. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's it's all about using the right tool for the job. Yeah. You know, and it's it, there's certain things that, you know, it's been engineered to do really well. Yeah. You put it really well when you said decentralized technologies and, and well, specifically for this conversation solid, like it's compatible with yeah. blockchain. I think that's a really important distinction to have covered in this conversation. You're talking about sort of scaling the web mm -hmm. and extending the web. But as you're talking about scaling the web, I couldn't help but take my brain to the last conversation that I wanted to talk about, which is you scaling mountains with <laughs> your Wrangler. Yeah. Uh, I feel like that's a fun topic to end with. So how the hell did you become essentially like a, a bit of a social media influencer for, for Jeep and Jeep, <laughs> and Jeep adjacent brands that yeah. helped pimp out your Jeep Wrangler uh, so tell, can you please tell Boston needs to hear this story? Yeah. So, um, okay. So, uh, you've basically heard that I've pretty much been you know, in front of a computer making stuff deliberately obsessively for the better part of the last three, three decades. And, um, I love what I do. So it's like, I don't even notice the time, you know, the time going by and, uh, you know, now um, I'm married. I've got two very little kids. Uh, but, you know, about eight years ago, nine years ago, in kind of the very early stages of, of the company, uh, had a lot more um, freedom of movement, mm -hmm. let's just say. And, you know, we're, we're uh, uh, able to do kind of a lot of remote work or not necessarily uh, um, have to be showing up in the office, you know, every day, you know, now I'm, I'm here in our office here in Boston every day, but, uh, had a little bit of freedom and it was actually my brother who, my brother, Jonathan, who's my, uh, business partner here who said, you know, like you've got the freedom right now yeah. to go and you know move around a bit. And you just, you get so hyper-focused on the work Go and do something. Like yeah. go and and take advantage of that somehow. Take advantage and, of the maneuverability. Yeah. yeah. And I had I had just got a um, a Jeep Wrangler, and I've it's the uh, the second one that I've had. My brothers had a couple growing up. Like we always liked dirt bikes yeah. and stuff like that. But uh, it kind of like this light bulb went off, and um, and we had. We were actually in Park City, Utah, when he made that comment, right. visiting a client. Okay. Because we were talking about how cool it is out here, and yeah, you know, he's like, "Why? Yeah. yeah, you're talking about how great it is. So why don't you could stay here right now yeah. for a week, and it would be fine." Uh, so I I remember I went home and I thought he's really got a point, and I ultimately got this idea that I was renting an apartment in uh, the south end of Boston at the time. My lease was coming up. I thought, you know what, I'm just gonna, when my lease comes up, I'm not gonna renew. And I'm going to work from a different place in the country every two or three weeks for at least the next six months, you know, but maybe longer. Digital nomads. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm gonna pick the places, not based on the kind of like go-to stock places that you go, yeah. I'm going to pick them based on 
where it would be cool to off-road my Jeep. <laughs> yeah. Because that's, it, it kind of, that's going to take me to a completely different, different class of places. Place. Yeah. And I just was trying to get uh, out of what was the norm for me. You know, just if I'm going to shake it up, like I might as well shake it up. I remember the first place that um, I, the first place I went to was Boone, North Carolina. Where and is that like out in the mountains? Is that out west? It was, uh, it's kind of like in the middle. Um, I, I had a cabin at the top of a mountain okay. for like three weeks. And it was really cool. Like I, I loved it. It was me and my uh, Rottweiler Loki. <laughs> just nice. in my Jeep cruising around the country. And uh, so there were, um, uh, I took it off-roading you know, there at the first stop. Uh, had a GoPro, had like my phone video camera and decided I was going to just start sharing with people what I was doing. So I thought it was cool. You yeah. know? And uh, take some videos, take some pictures from my friends, posted them on a couple cheap forums and uh, made a Facebook page. And... Uh, then I kind of went, you know, place to place. You know, I was Alabama, New Mexico, Colorado, North Dakota, uh, South Dakota, Wyoming, um, Northern California, Southern California, Kentucky, Tennessee, uh, Illinois. Um, wow. I'm leaving some places yeah, out. Yeah. Any place that was that had any any kind of trail that would be fun some rugged terrain <laughs> yeah um a lot of places and uh, i just started posting pictures and video and people started following me and you know fast forward to, to today i've got about a hundred thousand followers um i haven't been very active i'll admit over the last you know couple of years basically since i had since i had kids yeah uh, if you're thinking of having um, kids they're wonderful don't yeah. let that discourage you yeah. but if you have Be some prepared. kind of a nomadic jeep career yeah. it could get in the way yeah. a little bit or if you're doing iron man i was doing i did an iron man the year before my daughter was born i didn't try every year and then since <laughs> she's been born i've done zero uh, so yeah. but we love them but we love them uh, <laughs> and uh so you know my jeep you know how i started getting the sponsors and stuff was once you start doing off-road and um you start messing shit up you start breaking things <laughs> but you also start hitting things that you can't do yeah and you're like well i could do that if i had <laughs> yeah if i had a you know a better suspension or if i had you know a, a beefier transfer case yeah. or if my engine was supercharged and would you like put that up on Instagram or whatever, like a picture and be like, if I had this or. No, we, no. What happened was people, I just, it's a the it, community, the around community you. is pretty yeah. fairly small. And I'd yeah. end up kind of going to events and meeting a bunch yeah. of people from the industry who yeah. would just offer me stuff and nice. say, Hey, you know, like everybody's watching your videos and uh, you kind of are out there and you get a lot of attention I would love to put my supercharger on your engine. I'm not going to say no to that. You yeah. know? So uh, fast forward to now, you know, my, my Jeep's been rebuilt. I'm on like the third rebuild. It's kind of, my friend uh, likes to say it's made of unobtainium because for the average, no one would ever invest All this much money things. into it. Yeah. Um, I got it mostly for free, yeah. but uh, it's a, full-on rock crawler it can do crazy stuff and when i drive it around here i don't drive it every day i have yeah. a daily driver yeah. um 
but it's like driving around a Ferrari that no one's ever seen because really? it's so ridiculous. Oh my god, I gotta see this. Thing. Um, but uh, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> what I've liked about off roading is it has brought me to places that I just would never have had occasion to visit ever in my life. Yeah. Um, even better, I've got to meet people and uh, lifelong friends now. Um, you know, people who flew in for my wedding, literally yeah. from all over the country. Uh, from cool. from these different places who have a completely different outlook, a completely different lifestyle, a completely different perspective than I've created growing up on the coast in Massachusetts, you know, in, in uh, you know, 10 minutes or 15 minutes away from, you know, one of, you know, the coolest cities in the world here in yeah. Boston. Um, it's just really allowed me to have a better appreciation for um you know this this country and the people in it Mm -hmm. and i think especially today Mm -hmm. that is really valuable yeah you know um i think uh there's as things get more and more polarized having a better appreciation for uh what kind of keeps us in common yeah um, commonalities yeah yeah it's uh it, it, I'm, I'm super thankful for it. Yeah. And, um, you know, so nowadays, um, you know, I, I don't, I obviously came back from that trip, I think after about seven or eight months. Yeah. Um, what was your brother like, wow, you really took that far. Yeah. He's like, <laughs> you know, I gotta be honest. I didn't expect it going to that extreme and I'm yeah. glad you're back. Um, but we made it work while yeah. I was away. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I still, go and do do the trips uh typically at the beginning of the season just kind of like you know springtime yeah uh i drive my i tow my jeep across the country and leave it somewhere you know, usually around like the colorado wyoming area or um uh kind of north northern california because most of the most of the good stuff is up around there mm-hmm. and then at some point and then I'll kind of fly out, go and do stuff, move it then usually to kind of like the Midwest area. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. You're around the fall, kind of do some trips out around there and then bring it home. Um, and all these trips I'm doing, it's like I'm going to visit friends too. You know, I'm seeing yeah. all these people that, um, you know, I see a few times a year, but they're like family now. So that's cool. It's been uh, for, for someone who, you know, is used to being, within the vicinity of a strong Wi-Fi signal. Yeah. Going out on some of these trips, it's like two days, no no cell reception. Yeah. And you just, you got to make it work and stuff breaks and you're like using a mobile welding kit to just yeah. connect, you know, connect connect the dots That's so you can crazy. get out. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a, it's, it was been a fun experience for me. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. You've, you found an amazing um, hobby, yang, to your like career yang yeah like it really is truly um so like who knows maybe some boston entrepreneurs will listen to this and like they'll like hit you, you might have people hitting you up based on this story just yeah. to get involved in like the let's go off-roading jeep, let's go if, off-roading if you yeah. have a jeep How, yeah. and you want to go on a weekend trip let me know um there's some there's stuff up around here in the northeast that yeah we can get into so. what is the best way to get in touch with you justin uh so um uh, email justin.bingham at chineradigital.com, uh, LinkedIn, Justin Bingham, same name, it turns <laughs> out. Uh, but then on, on Twitter, on GitHub, 
on Gitter. Um, I'm at Justin WV on all of those and hit me up on, on any of them. Um, uh, I love to collaborate, love to hear what people are working on. Um, I do some stuff with tech stars and I always enjoy that. So yeah. if any of the experiences that, I, that I've had or the mistakes that I've <laughs> made can help, you know, people make better choices or smarter choices, I love to share that stuff. So, um, and I'm right here over by the garden pretty much every day. So usually pretty easy to find. Amazing. J Justin, this has been a pleasure. Likewise. Yeah. Thanks so much for having Thank me. Thank you. Cheers, Boston. <laughs>